Amen. Well, hey, thank you, worship team. That was beautiful. Um, really enjoyed worshiping in that way. Um, well, good morning. Thank you for being with us today to worship the Lord on this day where it is honestly a very good day to be inside. So it's good to be here, nice and nice and warm and dry. And uh, we are moving right ahead into Joshua chapter 3 this morning. Remember, big picture, uh, God has been promising Israel I'm going to give you the promised land, and it's been happening for, for most of the Old Testament at this point. And here we are now, we're into the sixth book of the Old Testament, and they are finally about to go into the promised land. After all the years in Egypt, all the years wandering around the wilderness, they're finally about to enter the promised land. Uh, but there's another big miracle that needs to take place first. And, and what we're going to see as we look at this chapter, kind of the common thread that I think holds it all together is, is this idea of we are called to follow God, or, or maybe from a New Testament standpoint, we are called to follow Jesus. What does that look like? You know, like you think about the, um, the Olympic opening ceremonies where you've got all these athletes walking into the stadium and they're all following their flag bearer, their, their one athlete that gets chosen to carry the flag. You know, in, in a similar sense, we are called to follow God, but obviously in a much greater and more impactful way. So what does that look like for us practically? Well, we're going to start, and we're just going to read Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. So a cubit is 18 inches. Uh, 2,000 cubits then is is 3,000 feet. No, 3,000 inches. No, it's, it's like a half a mile. So the math is not working this morning. It's a half a mile. Um... Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So again, just as a reminder, last week the spies... They went across to Jericho, they met Rahab, Rahab saved their lives, they come back with a report that God will surely give the land to us, he is faithful, and so now they're ready to go. Finally, after all these years of waiting, they are ready to enter the promised land, and this is what God tells them to do. He says, follow the ark. The, the priests, you got to carry the ark, you got to be half a mile out in front, you just follow the ark. He doesn't tell them Here's what you're going to do along the way. He doesn't tell them, here's what you're going to encounter when you get to the Jordan River. He just says, follow the ark. Which is significant because essentially what he's saying is, follow me. Right? Because we know that the ark is where the presence of God dwelt in Old Testament Israel. It was this golden chest that had the cherubim on top. The cherubim like two angels that faced each other. And in between the two angels, the two cherubim, was the mercy seat, and that's where the presence of God dwelt. You can see this in Exodus 25, 22. 
This is one of the first places we read about the ark. It says, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is where the presence of God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple. And so God is saying, follow me, follow my presence as you go into the promised land. But again, we don't know much about the journey. We don't know. He doesn't tell them details. Okay, and so this is the first point we need to to think about practically this morning is that our calling, we are called to focus on following God, not figuring out the future. We're called to follow God, not figure out the future. Check the box for alliteration. I got, I got that. So give me a... Never mind. So this is important because this helps us answer the question, which is a big question that we all have. How do I figure out God's will for my life? How do I know what God's will is for my life. If you're a young person, how do you know what college you should go to? Other than, like me, I had one choice because, because of my grades. It's like, well, you got that. And that's it. Or just don't go to college. So, but maybe if you're smart and you have good grades, you have multiple choices. Great, great for you. That's awesome. How do you know which is the right one? Or maybe even more important, how do I know which person I should marry? How do I know who Mr. or Mrs. Wright is, right? Um, how, how do I know what career I should go into? How do I know, like later in life, how do I know if I should change jobs, if I should take that promotion, or if I should move to a new city, or, or where we should put our kids in school, or all of these things are, are tough choices, and there's not necessarily a clear answer. So how do I know which one is the right one that God wants me to choose? This is very hard. And it's not like there's a, an ark that appears over the, the right girl's head. Like, oh, it's that one. There's the ark over her head. You know, like that's the one God wants me to choose, right? It's not like there's some smoking fire pot leading us to the, the right job choice. You know, we, we have to essentially trust and take steps of faith and depend on God to work out the details of what we would call his decreed will. Okay, so here's something that may, may be helpful is to think about God's will for us in terms of two different categories, right? There's his decreed will, which is everything that's going to happen in the future. Whatever girl or guy you marry, whatever job you take, whatever college you go into, you know, every detail of your life, God's ordained it. He's planned it. And and yes, there is, in, in a sense, a right path that you're going to take, but God doesn't expect you to know what that path is in advance. He's not, he doesn't expect us to, to like know the future and read the tea leaves and find the signs and then figure them out and then follow those signs. That's not what he says in his word. But, but that is his decreed will. Everything that's going to come to pass, or you could call it his sovereign will, everything that's going to happen, it's that category. But then there's also another category, which you might call his revealed will. You might also call it his moral will. Now, this is the category that we need to pay attention to. Okay, this is the commands of God. How do I know God's will for my life? We read it in the Bible. We read it in what He commands of us. This this is where following God's will, knowing how to do the will of God in our lives, is very clear. Do the commandments. 
do what he says in the moral law. So Jesus summarizes that when he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And those are, of course, summaries of the Ten Commandments. And there are other different aspects of that that we must follow. But in short, our role, our responsibility as those who are following God, as those who are following Christ, again, it is not to know the future or to, to try to look for signs to figure out where God wants us to go. It's, no, wherever we are, wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we play, we do the will of God. In other words, the revealed will of God, the, the moral will of God. We follow Christ in that way, and we leave the future up to Him. We leave you know, His decrees, whatever comes to pass, up to Him. So just an example of this, <clears throat> maybe to make this a little bit more clear. When I was in college, someone approached me with an opportunity to go and do a, a one-year missionary internship somewhere in Mexico. And um, I, I had been interested in, in ministry, I'd been interested in Spanish, and so the two kind of collided, and this guy was like, hey, you, you'd be really good at this, why don't you do this? So I thought about it, I prayed about it, and I hemmed and hawed, and ultimately I chose not to do it. And probably the reason why I chose not to do it was I was scared, you know, I didn't want to leave my friends and, and family for that long, um, I was comfortable where I was, maybe not necessarily the, the best reasons, right? But, but that's why I chose to stay, and ultimately I did a, a youth ministry internship instead. But here's, here's the question, and I struggled with this for a while afterwards. Did I somehow frustrate God's plans <clears throat> by choosing not to go? Did I somehow, like is God, am I, am, I'm making the choice not to go, and God's like, okay, you missed it, like you've completely rearranged all of my plans, and now I've got to adjust. Like, you know, have you guys seen the, the Loki miniseries on Disney Plus where you got like the, the was it the TVA, the Time Variant Association? There's like these time variants who like cause these interruptions in the timeline, and they've got to like, you know, clean it all up, and that's, that's not how God operates, and that's not how we operate. We don't have that kind of power. We can't be a time variant, because guess what? When it comes to the decreed will of God, we will do whatever he decrees. There's no way for us to get around that. Okay? And he even uses our choices and he even uses our sinful choices sometimes to bring about what he decrees. So we cannot, like there's actually some real freedom here. I hope you see that. That we don't have to worry about finding out what the future is. God does not want us to read tea leaves. He does not want us to look for signs about You must choose this one thing or else. No, what he wants us to do is follow his commands. And sometimes that's going to make it easy. Like there's going to be choices where, you know, if you if you have a a job opportunity or something that I don't know, like would would lead you to be some kind of a an assassin or something like that, you know, that's an obvious choice where no, don't do that, okay? You're breaking God's commandments. All right. But maybe there's other choices where there, there's two, three, four, like college. I mean, how do you know which college is right? FSU, UL, well, that's obvious. But UCF, uh, US, I mean, hey, they're fine. Go to all of them. Go to any of them. Use wisdom. Weigh the pros and cons. There's not a right one. Whichever one you ultimately choose to go to is the one that God decreed for you to go to. Okay? I hope that makes sense. 
So God's decreed will, leave that up to him. God's revealed will, that's what he calls us to focus on as we follow him. Now, within this part of the text, there's another responsibility that God gives to us. He says, verse 5, consecrate yourselves. In the Old Testament, this was usually like a ritual washing where they would wash themselves clean before they would do a sacrifice or, or go to synagogue or something like that. It was a way that they were showing that they were set apart for God's use specifically. And it's also a way for God to show them, you need to be prepared to encounter me. You need to be prepared to be with me. And this, in this context specifically, he's saying, you need to be prepared to witness me at work and to be part of what I'm doing. And so for us, how do we prepare to encounter God? How do we prepare to be part of what he's doing to witness him at work? And one way specifically we can do that is by preparing for worship. Now, of course, all of life in a sense can be worship. You can worship God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all, all the days, okay? Everything you do, you can worship God in that, but there is a specific day set aside. This day, the Lord's Day, we were called to gather as part of corporate worship. And this is something unique where we believe we encounter God by His Spirit uh, as we come to worship Him. And so this is something that we should treat as special. This is something that we should look at as a big deal because why? The God of the universe is, is coming to be with us, to dwell among His people. And so how do we prepare ourselves for that? Is that even something that we're thinking about doing? Preparing ourselves for worship. This is really hard because, you know, like I got a text this morning at about 8 o'clock. Morgan, Isaac has sprayed water all over the bathroom. Like he's taken a shower and he, he flips the shower head up because he thought it'd be cool to see what happens. You know, this is what six-year-olds do. And, and Jennifer's like, there's water all over the bathroom. I'm like, why? Why? Why do evil spirits enter my children every Sunday morning? This is what happens. How do you prepare yourself for worship when that's what's going on on Sunday morning? When you got, you know, who knows what you've experienced this morning or every Sunday morning. It's, it's really hard. But maybe one way would be to prioritize it just by putting it on your calendar as a non-negotiable commitment. This is not something that we're just going to decide if I wake up and I feel like going, I'll go. No, God says it is crucial that my people gather together on, on the Lord's day to hear the preached word, to sing praises to him, to pray together, to be together in fellowship. This is not a negotiable thing unless we are providentially hindered. So we, so we prioritize it. Another way we prepare is we pray about it. And, I, and I, even as I say this, I'm feeling convicted because I don't really do this enough. And, but, but to pray, even the night before, pray, Lord, would you, would you make tomorrow morning a delight? for my children to, to just like get ready. You know, when I tell them to get ready, they get ready instead of, the, instead of Satan entering, entering into them and making them do weird things. Like anticipate that. Pray for God's blessing, for his protection um, to, to cover us for that morning. Another way is to rest. I learned this over, over uh, you know, basically the entire decade of my 20s. It took me a very long time to see the correlation, but, but did you know that there is a direct correlation between staying out way too late on Saturdays 
and being tired and not being able to focus at church on Sunday mornings. I got, it took me 10 years to figure this out. But I, fi- I finally realized, oh, maybe I should not stay out till 2 a.m. on Sundays, and I should go to sleep. That's a great idea. Maybe you're a quicker study than me. But that, that's a real thing, though, right? I mean, do you prepare yourself for worship by just getting some rest on Saturday night? And that, that can be a hard thing to to give up because typically in our culture, Saturdays are obviously such a, you know, big go out kind of type of day. But um, look, I'm not trying to be legalistic about this. I'm not saying you got to do this stuff or else. I'm just saying this is, this is important. This is a big deal. We're encountering the God of the universe here. Why don't we prepare for it? Why don't we focus ourselves on how we might get ready to worship him? So as we follow God's lead, we we don't have to worry about figuring out the future. We, we focus on Him. And then the next thing is that to follow God's lead, we must draw near and listen to God's Word. So uh, the next set of verses, verses 7 through 13, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, all of the ites. So behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all of the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap." So, the, so he gives us a preview of the miracle that's going to happen. And he's basically saying, I'm going to stop the waters of the Jordan, which flow from, from north to south. They're going to stop flowing. They're, they're going to be a, become a wall of water. And I'm actually going to push them back so that there's this space of dry land for, for all of Israel to pass through. And we'll talk more about that miracle in a few minutes. But, but I want to focus on, at first this idea of the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. Why does God say that he needs to essentially affirm Joshua's role as the successor to Moses? Well, it's because the people have to trust Joshua's leadership because right at this point in Israel's history, God is communicating his word to the people through Joshua. They don't have complete Bibles that they can just take and read God's word from. They may have a written copy of the, of the Torah, the first five books of the law, like maybe one or a couple of copies that Moses has written down. But other than that, as God reveals his will, his word to them, he is revealing it through Joshua. So the people have to be able to listen to Joshua and know, okay, this is a guy that I can trust. It's not that Joshua needs to be perfect, it's just that it needs to be very clear to them that this is God's man and this guy, Joshua, is going to, he's going to follow God, okay? And so we get this very, very well-known verse from later in Joshua where Joshua makes this declaration. 
In 24.15, he says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people have to know that this is who Joshua is and that God has legitimately chosen him to be this guy through which he delivers his word. And But what is the people's role? What, what are they supposed to do as, as Joshua gives the word to the people from God? Well, verse 9 says, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. So here's our, here's our second responsibility. We are to draw near to the word of God and listen. This is what God wants us to do. It makes me think about um, the story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10. Let's, let's put that up there and we'll read it. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What is the good portion? The good portion was sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him. This is what Jesus says. The portion, by the way, is like um, a part of, specifically uh, uh, of an inheritance or a part of the land that was the best part. So think about like with a cow. What's the best part of a cow to eat? Is it, is it like the filet or is it the prime rib? What's the most satisfying part? That's the portion, the good portion. When we come near and we listen to God's word, it is, it is satisfying to us. It is sweet to us. The Bible in Psalm 119 says it's sweeter than honey. And it's sweet because it's how, again, it's how we know how to follow God. It's how we, we know what He wants of us. It's how we encounter God. It's how we hear from Him. And it's how we get God's promises and God's assurance. So we see a couple of promises here that God gives to the, the Israelites. He says, for one, I'm going to drive out these ites. All these people who are inhabiting the promised land, I'm going to drive them out so that you can come and live in the promised land. And again, this is a fulfillment of a previous promise that God had given to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. This is almost 500 years before in the life of Israel. He says in Genesis 15, verses 18 and 19, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. In other words, the promised land. He says, the land of all all those ites. I I will give that land to you. Okay, so 500 years later, it's finally happening, and Israel is about to be part of this. They're about to be part of taking the land. So God is reminding them of that promise. And then he's also reminding them of the promise that he's going to be with them. This is the, the refrain that we get so often in the Old Testament is God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be with you. This is the most important thing that we can hear from God's word. I will be with you. God is, God is saying, no matter what, I will be with you. This is what we're created for. This is what we're made for, to be with God, to be in right relationship with Him. So no matter what you're going through, today, this week, whatever, whatever hard thing that you have to, to encounter, we can know if we are in Christ, God is with us. Even if it feels like we're, we're going through a hard time, even if we are suffering, God is actually with us, maybe even more so in our suffering. So God repeats these promises to us over and over again. And then, not only that, He gives us assurances of those promises. 
He's like, he's basically saying, look, I'm promising you things. I'm always going to keep my promises. And I'm also going to assure you that I'm always going to keep my promises. I mean, it's, it's crazy how gracious he is to us because he knows what, that we have weak faith, that we forget that we, you know, we go through these days where we just, we doubt, we struggle. We, we, we don't know, is, is God really with me? No, he's saying, look, I'm going to, to the Israelites, he says, I'm going to do this miracle so that again, you'll have another visible reminder that I am with you, that I'm going to keep my promises. So just like he did um, when he led him out of the Exodus and he parted the Red Sea, he's going to do that again with, with the waters of the Jordan. He's, and by the way, water in the Old Testament especially was often a, a sign of God's judgment, right? Like So you think about Noah's Ark where God covers the earth with water as, as a judgment against sin. Water represents God's judgment. And here he's saying, I'm going to spare you from my judgment. I'm going to stop the water. I'm going to move it back so that you will not have to experience my judgment. So how do we know all this stuff? How do we remember the promises of God? How do we see God's assurances? Well, it comes back to, are we drawing near and listening to God's word? Are we choosing the good portion and sitting at Jesus' feet the way Mary did? Are we taking advantage of, of these opportunities? I know, I know it can be hard to find time in your schedule to read the Bible personally, but again, I would say this is a call for us to make time in our schedule. Even if it means you have to listen to it on a podcast while you drive, make time in your schedule for God's Word. Make time in your schedule for opportunities that we have for community uh, study. You know, I don't know if you guys, for men, if you've ever been to C.J., Dawes's uh, Tuesday night men's Bible study. Guys, CJ is a fantastic Bible teacher. He will, he will take you through God's Word with a passion and, and with a knowledge that will knock your socks off. Uh, you should attend. Women, we have Wednesday morning, Wednesday evening opportunities where you can come and study God's Word together here at the church. There's also a Thursday night opportunity right now that's going um, until March 10th. Every Thursday night up in the youth room, we're having a live stream for women from uh, professors from Reformed Theological Seminary who are teaching you how to study God's Word and even how to teach God's Word for yourself. Uh, and we'd love for you to join us. Well, I, I won't be there, but uh, it's only for women. But Thursday nights, 7 o'clock, up in the youth room. And, and we want to keep on offering these types of opportunities for you. Why? Because, again, we believe we are called to sit at the feet of Jesus and read His Word, and study it, and encounter Him through it. How else will we remember and know God's precious promises to us? All right, the last thing we see here, as we move along in the text and get to the end, is that following God's lead allows us to witness how possible the impossible is with Him. Following God's lead allows us to witness how possible the impossible is with him. Let's read verses 14 through 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now we have a side note here. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. Back to the story. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city 
that is beside Zarethan. So I don't know how, how you imagine this, but maybe you imagine like a, a space of like, I don't know, 100 yards, a football field where, where the people get to move through. But that's not what it is. Adam, this city, is actually at least 15 miles north of where they crossed. So we're, we're talking about God, not just, he doesn't just stop the waters. He pushes the waters back in a wall. So where they have a space probably of about 20 miles where they can cross over the Jordan River. 20 miles, which is huge because, remember, this is a people, that they, there might be a million, maybe even two million people, that, and, and plus all their animals and stuff, that have to cross over the Jordan. So this is no easy task. It's not like crossing Double Branch Creek or something like that. I mean, this is, this is huge. So, so that's what's going on here. Um, where was I? Anyway, the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So finally, we, we get to the miracle, right? We get this incredible thing that God does, just as incredible as Him parting the Red Sea when they left Egypt. Um, again, the Jordan River was at flood season, so it was probably about a mile wide at this point and could have been as much as 12 feet deep. So there is no way, there's no way these people are crossing this river without God's intervention. It is absolutely impossible. So God does a miracle. And remember, Israel is supposed to be a half mile back from the ark, right? So as soon as the, the priests get into the river and God stops the water, the people can see this thing happening from a distance. So they can, like, they can get a full scope probably of what's going on. And so they're, they are called really to just bear witness to the glory of God here, to the, to the manifestation of his glory. And that's, that's a big reason why you might, you might ask, well, why did God have them go through at the hardest possible time? Like, why not wait until it was not flood season anymore? I mean, that would make so much more sense. But God wants his people here to be absolutely clear that this is not happening because of them. That it's only happening because God is doing it. I mean, they need to know that. Why do they need to know that? Because when they go into the promised land, every battle they fight... They have got to know, we're only going to win these battles if God is with us and because of God's help. He, he is burning into their brains and He wants to burn into our brains and our hearts this message from Psalm 121 too. He says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the message we have got to remember because, again, we, we start thinking we can do things like this. We start thinking about this in terms of salvation, right? Like, how, how often do we struggle with believing that we have to keep God's commands? Not, not as a way to follow Him, but as a way to earn salvation from Him. That's, that is a struggle that I think a lot of us have. And so we need to remember that wh- whether it comes to the, the small decisions that we make, the ability to, to please God, or whether it comes to the, the most important decision we can make, which is to, to follow Christ in the first place, it does not depend on us. We do not have power to make, this thing, to make these things happen. This reminds me of the story of the rich young man, which is in um, multiple different Gospels. But in Matthew 19, 
you know, there's this story where, where a, a young man comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Elsewhere in Luke, he actually says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus says to him, okay, well, you know the commandments, keep the commandments. And the rich young man is, is quite proud of himself. He says, well, all of these things I have done from my youth. And Jesus is like, okay, how about this? If you've done all that, then go sell all your possessions and follow me. And then you know what it says next. It says the rich young man went away sad because he had great wealth. And then later on in the chapter, you know, we get this little, little verse where it says the disciples are just completely dismayed by this. They, they don't understand what's going on here because you know, they believe that if a person was, was wealthy, then God had been really favorable to that person. Okay, But now they see this wealthy guy and Jesus is like, he, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And so they're like, well, well who can be saved? That's what they ask. Who then can be saved? Jesus' answer is Matthew 19, 26. It says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's the whole point of the story. This story, the point of the story is not that rich people can't go to heaven. The point of the story is nobody can go to heaven without Jesus. That's the point. If, if any of us, whether we're rich, whether we're poor, it doesn't matter. If any of us comes to God and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? God's answer is going to be, you can't do it. You cannot. It is impossible for you. But then he says, with God, it is possible. That's the point here. And that's why we have the greatest miracle of all time. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? He comes to show us that salvation is possible when we leave it up to God. It's interesting that, back, back to our story here with Israel, you know, God, God tells the priests to carry the ark, which has the presence of God, into the Jordan. And that is what initiates God's miracle, right? So they're standing there, Priests who are men holding the ark, which is the presence of God. And it just it strikes me how, how symbolic that is of what Christ has done for us, where Christ, who is he himself, is our great high priest, and he himself is God. He's 100% God and 100% man, which we were talking about that in communicants class. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. That's, you can't have 100% and 100%. It doesn't match up. I'm like, well, it's God's math, okay? It, all, it always makes sense if it's God's math. But but that's who Jesus is. He is both our priest, our great high priest, and he is God. And just as those priests carried the presence of God into the Jordan River and stopped God's judgment and turned it away, in a much greater way, Jesus Christ went to the cross and didn't just stop God's judgment. He actually absorbed God's wrath and judgment towards sin on our behalf. He took it on, on himself. Why? So that he could, so he could end it. So that we would never have to experience that. So that we could cross through into the proverbial promised land of the new heavens and new earth one day. God has done the impossible. 
It's incredible. It's the greatest miracle that's ever happened. He takes God's wrath upon himself, gives us his righteousness, and gives us eternal life. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you're going through right now. It doesn't matter what challenges you are facing. This right here, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, is the guarantee God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He specializes in doing the impossible. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then after that, we're going to uh, go to the Lord's table and celebrate together.